0: Welcome to Brainbeat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAND. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, immediate past president of NAND, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Igor Grant, who will be talking with us today about cannabis. Dr. Grant is a distinguished professor and director of the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Program and the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at UCSD. Dr. Grant served as chair of the UCSD Department of Psychiatry from 2014 to 2019. He's a neuropsychiatrist who graduated from the University of British Columbia School of Medicine and received specialty training in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. He had additional training in neurology at the Institute of Neurology in London. Dr. Grant's academic interests focus on the effects of various diseases on brain and behavior, with an emphasis on neuropsychological translational studies in HIV and drugs of abuse. He has contributed to approximately 800 scholarly publications and is principal investigator of several NIH studies. Nan has recognized Dr. Grant with the Nelson Butters Award for Research Contributions to Clinical Neuropsychology and the Distinguished Lifetime Contribution to Neuropsychology Award. Dr. Grant is past president of the International Neuropsychological Society, otherwise known as INS, which honored him with the Paul Satz INS Career Mentoring Award. Dr. Grant was founding editor of the Journal of the International Neuropsychological Society, otherwise known as JINS. Welcome, Dr. Grant, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Arnett.
0: Sure thing. Okay, so uh, I just find your research to be fascinating. I just, you know, I thought we could start off and maybe having you tell us a little bit more about the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research and its history.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's um, a unique kind of center. It was set up by the legislature of the state of California, actually, And we were established in the year 2000. What led to the uh, formation of CMCR was that in 1996, California passed what was called the Compassionate Use Act, which Mm -hmm. was the, I think, first in the nation, medicinal cannabis law. Mm -hmm. And so legislators were interested in the evidence base for medicinal cannabis and, you know, problems with it, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. So they approached the University of California and through a, a long series of steps that I won't bore you with, I was asked to direct this center and it's uh, located, as you say, at uh, UC San Diego.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I, I didn't know that history about it. That's really interesting. So it's referred to, I know, as the CMCR. So we'll just talk about it in that uh, regard as we move on for your center. But what has the CMCR learned about the specific diseases or conditions that can be aided by, uh, by cannabis?
1: Right. So in the uh, kind of first uh, years of our existence, our focus was to do some early studies, preliminary studies on conditions that it seemed THC particularly, which is, as you know, the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana, Mm -hmm. uh, whether THC was useful in certain conditions. And how did we pick the conditions? Well, there was a lot of anecdotal evidence, for example, that uh, neuropathic pain, which is a kind of chronic, uh, painful condition with hypersensitivity and so forth, Mm -hmm. that maybe marijuana was useful in that. Our patients with HIV-AIDS that we were studying as part of a different program were reporting this consistently. And also there was some animal and preclinical literature to suggest THC might be helpful in this regard. So our early studies actually focused on people with HIV-AIDS, And also some people with other conditions that had painful neuropathy, such as diabetes, and provided them uh, treatments with federally sourced marijuana. Uh, And this marijuana contained uh, varying contents of THC from very low, like 2%, to a bit higher, like 7%. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, those early studies did show that THC-containing products were helpful, at least in the short term, in managing neuropathic pain. And that's been confirmed in many studies in other places as well. And in fact, the um, National Academy's report on um, cannabis, which uh, came out a couple of years ago, said that basically this was a bit of a settled question that, that THC is helpful in in this mm-hmm. condition. What we sure. don't know about that, though, is the long-term durability of this effect because all of these studies were relatively short-term.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, we uh, we do need to know more about in the long-term, like for years, is there still efficacy and is the balance between efficacy and problems uh, still acceptable?
0: Okay. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I just a couple of follow-up questions for you just regarding The proportion of THC involved in these different um, interventions, was that regulated intentionally? Like, was it sort of systematically varied or did it just kind of depend on what what you happen to have available or what was available at the time? Is that something um, you could maybe talk a little bit
1: more about? So I'm summarizing the result of six different studies, basically. Mm -hmm. And so depending on the design of a particular project, some wanted to look at different strengths. Other studies decided, no, we're going to give 4% because mm-hmm. there had been some literature and experience that this kind of moderate dose was helpful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So really, it was based on our best hunch as to what the range of acceptable values are. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that certainly street marijuana, uh, the potency of THC or the content of THC has increased significantly significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, on average. Uh, whereas, you know, in sort of my day, 4% or 6% was considered uh, just quite acceptable. And um, mm-hmm. now people would turn away from that, at least the street users. Uh, okay. they would go for the 15%. Mm-hmm. Now, when somebody gets a medical marijuana
0: card, let's say to treat something like chronic pain, how do they know what dosing to get in terms of the amount of THC or whether they should get something that's purely cannabinoid? Or has some, you know, some amount of THC in it. How would a person know what to get specifically if they got that kind of a card from a, a doctor say?
1: Well, you've identified an important problem. And that is because cannabis continues to be a Schedule One drug, which means basically that it's something that's classified with other compounds that are very dangerous and for which there isn't appropriate medical information of benefit. Mm -hmm. By the way, the latter is definitely not true anymore, but uh, it's still sitting there. So that means that all the research had to be done on a product that the federal government could supply. Now, their product is grown at the University of Mississippi, and it has those ranges when we were studying it at that time. Now the ranges have increased. But I Mm -hmm. guess what I'm trying to get to is that we don't have, first of all, studies on products that people actually consume in states where it's legal to consume it, because we don't always know what all the content is of those substances. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we don't know enough about mode of administration. So for example, a lot of the uptick in medical marijuana use has not been in teen and 20s people as Mm -hmm. people had feared. It's more old people like me who have aches and pains of various kinds or are trying to medicate their arthritis or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so they're taking it by mouth. They're not going to smoke marijuana. Mm -hmm. So we don't know enough about pharmacokinetics and just longer term effects of different modes of administration. Mm, So it's very difficult uh, to answer your question for the consumer, if you will, to know quite what to do i guess if a doctor recommends medical cannabis they might say well you should uh, look at the label and and stick to something that's 4% or less do docs usually provide that kind of guidance
0: one of the reasons i'm interested in this question is just that through our neuropsychology practicum through our clinic at penn state i have noticed a huge increase in patients who are using cannabis and who have medical marijuana cards and it's not clear whether they're getting any kind of clear guidance in terms of you know what the proportion of THC should be in terms of the condition that they're using it for. And so I was just wondering if there are like guidelines that the typical doc would follow you know, just take chronic pain as the one signature example.
1: Well, first of all, let's talk about guidelines for an indication. Uh, forget the dose for a minute. In the state of California, we have worked uh, with our medical board. To develop kind of a decision tree to guide physicians mm-hmm. in whether or not, in the first instance, to even consider medicinal cannabis. Because in our state, it's legal, but you have to understand at the federal level, it's not legal. So, doctors in California, for example, cannot write a prescription, they could lose their DEA mm-hmm. registration. Uh, which would really impair their medical practice. So there's this gray area all the time. Anyway, in California, we've developed a suggested decision tree that once you suspect somebody has neuropathy, and then you go through this process of saying, well, did they uh, get standard treatment? Did the standard treatment work? If it didn't work, do they have any other conditions that would preclude medicinal cannabis use, such as, for example, a history of addiction or maybe some other uh, problem? Mm -hmm. So that's one side of it. As far as the dosage, there are no dosage uh, recommendations that one feels comfortable doing because, again, the research is still not fully developed. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I would just say informally is that we find that relatively low concentrations of THC appear to be helpful. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to get stoned. No, right. As long as it has some diabetes.
0: THC, though, uh, so you would then recommend that if a patient, say, who has chronic pain is taking a cannabinoid product, that there be at least some THC in it to have the
1: or for the neuropathic pain. pain. Yes, mm-hmm. for neuropathic pain. Now we don't know enough yet about certain kinds of inflammatory pain. Where it's possible that cannabidiol CBD, which uh, I'm sure your listeners have heard a lot about, uh, we don't know if CBD might be particularly helpful in um, pain that is caused by inflammatory conditions. and mm-hmm. that's, So that might be a different type of recommendation.
0: Could be maybe an avenue for additional research too, it sounds like.
1: Well, and in fact, our center is doing uh, one study, uh, actually supporting a study at UCLA, which is uh, looking at rheumatoid arthritis and the inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis and and the symptoms of it and whether cannabidiol specifically Mm -hmm. might be helpful. Yeah, this is all
0: a very interesting discussion and certainly an education for me. What do we know about the benefits and risks of medical cannabis? we talked a little bit about some of the benefits, at least in terms of addressing some chronic pain conditions, but what about some risks that might be involved in its use?
1: Right. By the way, another condition where there's pretty good evidence that THC-containing product can be helpful is uh, muscle spasticity and multiple mm-hmm. sclerosis. Mm-hmm. So quite mm-hmm. a bit of work done on that right. as well. And I've mentioned, though, that there is a growing area of research on cannabidiol also, and cannabidiol is a non-psychoactive uh, cannabidiol. Mm-hmm. Coming back to your original question on THC-based products, it seems that if one takes low-content THC, that the side effects are minimal, which would be possibly, uh, you know, somebody feeling a little bit high. Certainly, they shouldn't be driving while they're taking these products. So there are the expected neurological, neurocognitive effects that you might expect. Um,
0: Just in terms of like on a temporary basis, is that what you mean? Like when the well, they're they're temporary, and
1: and and in our patients, they were extremely mild, mm -hmm. uh, such that even neuropsych testing that was done at the same time showed only very small changes Mm -hmm. in cognitive functioning, like less than a half a standard deviation on a composite measure. Mm -hmm. So that's not nothing, but it's modest. And Um, is that if I could just ask
0: a quick follow up to that? So in terms of those kinds of mild effects, are those only evident in the immediate aftermath?
1: Yes, yes. Generally speaking, that's the Mm -hmm. case. Now, having said that, so I I think it has a good safety profile, but that doesn't mean it's 100% safe. No medicine is. And we know that, for example, in older people, THC can uh, increase heart rate, it can change blood pressure. So if you are a patient with serious heart disease, even these smaller or modest doses of THC could be harmful. Again, the studies have not been extended to large groups of older people with comorbid conditions. Also, if you have a dementing disorder, Uh, Certainly, THC, like any other kind of drug that impairs, could impair cognitive function, could make it significantly worse. Right. Mm -hmm. So those are some examples um, one needs to be cautious about.
0: What about psychiatric kinds of problems? Is there any concern about somebody who takes a THC product who has, say, pre-existing anxiety, depression? Are there any concerns there that it would make taking a cannabis product would make those conditions worse?
1: I think one always needs to be cautious in people who have pre-existing uh, psychiatric or even neuropsychiatric conditions. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it is true that THC can produce anxiety in some people. It's a minority, but that's a known side effect and has been mm-hmm. reported by speaking people smoking marijuana, that they get very anxious and get a panic attack even, and so forth. So that is a possibility. We did not see that in our studies, possibly because, again, the content was relatively low. Mm -hmm. In terms of, uh, you know, tripping off a psychotic episode, certainly THC can produce a psychotic state. It's uncommon, but people can develop paranoid kind of ideas. Uh, They may hallucinate. We did not see that again in our series. Again, I think because the conditions of treatment were well well regulated and and maybe these people did not have. Well, in fact, I know for a fact that we did not have people in the medical studies that had, say, schizophrenia or. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, they would have been screened out. So
1: uh, they would have been screened out. Mm -hmm. So there are these possibilities, certainly.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the risk is pretty low. And just kind of pivoting a little bit, we, we've talked a little bit about some of the research that needs to be done moving forward. And I know you and your center are doing a lot of that research. You have grants that are dedicated to this. You have projects. And so, yeah, just be you know interested in hearing a little bit more about that, about some of the ongoing projects and some of the directions that you're taking the research at the center.
1: Just to say a word about our center again. We both do research ourselves, and we are also a kind of a, a funding agency. That We're like a micro I NIH or yeah. something. <laughs> uh, so we have some money from the state. Every year we distribute about $1.1 million to investigators in the state, mm-hmm. you know, to do, again, proof of principle studies because, yeah. you know, 1100000 million doesn't support a giant clinical trial, as you know. Mm-hmm. So these are all, is there... Evidence for a signal that should be pursued in a larger study. Mm-hmm. If there's that kind of concept. So if somebody, say, got a grant
0: through your center and they found something interesting, how would they go about getting funding to follow that up? Whether there be a means to do that through federal agencies or there's some
1: limits on that? Well, there are the federal government is getting more and more interested in these kinds of therapeutic trials. 20 years ago, they were really not. Most marijuana related research uh, was on what are the harmful and problematic elements of marijuana or more basic science, what are the neurobiological mechanisms of action, that kind of thing. But now there is more interest in that, but particularly in cannabidiol, I would say as a possible therapeutic agent. So that one would pursue it that way. The second avenue is that in a number of states, there are also state agencies that provide funding, philanthropic agencies. For example, we have a study on autism uh, Mm -hmm. that is supported by a foundation. So these are all possible sources. Mm
0: -hmm. And then just back to your research, sorry, we sort of veered away from that. I just uh, was curious about that element of things, but In terms of the research that you're pursuing with your group, with your center, you know, beyond providing funding for others, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about some of the ongoing things and some of the things of of interest to you.
1: Right. Well, so one study that is getting started is a study on cannabidiol Mm -hmm. in people with early psychotic symptoms. So the investigator here is interested in early psychosis or Prodromal schizophrenia or Mm -hmm. schizophrenic symptoms that have, you know, have appeared and haven't lasted for too long. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of literature to suggest that cannabidiol has an antipsychotic effect. So that's one of the studies that we're doing is to look at whether cannabidiol truly has antipsychotic effects. (laughs) It's interesting because cannabidiol doesn't have a lot of bad side effects the way some of our antipsychotic drugs do. For example, it doesn't cause tardive dyskinesia or uh, metabolic syndrome and weight gain and all these kinds of things. So if it were true that it has even some benefit, it provides a new a way of treating people that actually may be more acceptable. And so patients are less likely to stop treatment because mm-hmm. they hate the side effects so much.
0: Right. For this kind of a study, uh, it's certainly very interesting. Do people take the cannabidiol every day? And what's the duration of the trial during which you would expect to see some kind of effect?
1: Well, so for example, uh, the study may involve a month uh, to six weeks of administration. Uh, Usually the dosage, there's an initial kind of wash in period, if you will, where one sees how the person is responding. Are there any negative effects and so forth? Mm -hmm. But typically you would titrate up to something uh, like 800 milligrams a day, uh, something of that nature. Mm for a time and then wean people off and see if there's a change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one kind of study. Another study that is starting here is the possibility that CBD may be helpful for sleep disorders. So again, the study is aimed at looking at people who are taking Ambien or whatever it is on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and seeing if you could substitute uh, CBD. Oh boy,
0: that's interesting. And what are you finding so far?
1: Well, that study is... About to start. So, okay.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating.
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's an example of a study that could have a lot of impact if it was true, because there's, uh, you know, a lot of people have trouble sleeping and that's Mm -hmm. something they want to deal with. Absolutely. And uh, as I say, we have an ongoing study in autism. And again, this is a study of seven to 12-year-old boys with autism mm-hmm. who have severe autistic behavioral issues. So these are not people with on the mild side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And because there aren't really great treatments for those, that's why uh, we chose to try CBD there. Again, mm-hmm. why? There's been anecdotal evidence. Parents have reported. They say, gosh, I gave my kids CBD and they're a different person. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's part of a um, a randomized clinical mm-hmm.
0: trial. Yeah, that sounds like great stuff.
1: So those are examples. I mean, I could go on there. I mean, we're supporting, I think right now, either doing ourselves or supporting, uh, I think, 16 different studies. Well, that's
0: fantastic. There's wow, that one, is lot. quite an enterprise. And a
1: few of those are, yeah. are, are preclinical. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you one other example, which is that, is it possible that CBD may help in addiction treatment. There's, uh, again, some evidence that CBD may reduce the craving that mm-hmm. addicted people or animals have. So, as you know, it's not that hard to stop taking a drug, but maintaining that abstinence is very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's like with diet control, everybody can right. lose weight, but <laughs> keeping it off is a whole other story. Keep with it. So, yeah. so there's some... Suggestion that CBD may interfere with that craving aspect. So uh, that's an animal study that's being done. Okay. Uh, in, in this case, alcohol. There are mm-hmm. also studies that are starting on THC specifically and possibly helping with opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know that goes against the grain. A lot of people say, well, marijuana is a gateway drug or it enhances mm-hmm. opioid effects and so forth. But in fact, there's some contrary evidence that it may actually reduce again mm-hmm. administration of opioids.
0: Well it so. certainly could have quite an impact just given the you know the widespread nature of the opioid crisis mm-hmm. in this country so that all sounds like incredibly important work. Well, I'm excited to see what you're going to find you know, so I'll keep following things, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will want to do that as well. I just wanted to move on to maybe talking about some kind of neuropsychology-related issues. Uh, sure. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is whether there are any measurable cognitive impairments in recreational users who aren't under the influence at the time of the evaluation. So kind of moving away from the more systematic controlled trials that you've done just for you know, the kind of impact that you might see or expect to see in recreational users.
1: Yeah, and that actually is not an easy question to answer, as it turns out. First of all, as you can imagine, uh, there are no sort of pre-post studies that can unravel the whole chicken and egg question Mm -hmm. that if you find that, for example, cannabis users as a group perform less well on some tests than other, Mm -hmm. is it because of the cannabis or is it because they were different to begin with? And cannabis use is part of that whole pattern. There is a large, by the way, NIDA-supported uh, study, well, it's probably supported by several institutes, but NIDA is the main player, called ABCD study, mm-hmm. which is actually looking at kids uh, starting at, I think, at age nine, You know, before they're likely to get into using or experimenting with drugs and then following them systematically into teen and early adulthood. Mm-hmm. That's going to help a lot In sorting out the question of, uh, you know, do those who start using cannabis regularly actually decline uh, or get behind uh, as a result of that use, Mm -hmm. we actually do not know. So I was involved in a meta-analysis years ago where we found that uh, once you looked at studies that examined people who were abstinent at least for a week or two or more, Mm -hmm. there were really essentially no differences Mm -hmm. in cognitive Mm -hmm. functioning. There was a a very teeny effect that we observed on, Mm on a memory measure. Uh, Then a second larger meta-analysis was conducted about a decade later, and that had the benefit of having more studies where people were truly abstinent. And they found that once you looked at that subgroup, they found no effect at all Mm -hmm. uh, on any neurocognitive measure. That's fascinating. Now, more recently, a group from the University of Montreal has done yet another (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) meta-analysis. And they indicate that they find small negative effects Mm -hmm. in abstinent people. But the question there one still has is, how long were they abstinent? Because one thing we know is that THC and cannabinoids hang around a long time in the body. And even if they didn't, The process of neurobiological adaptation from quitting any kind of drug takes time. Mm -hmm. We know this even from alcohol work that we did, that's a much shorter acting agent, of course, that if you really want to see if a person with alcoholism has sustained permanent brain injury, You have to examine them 6, 12, 18 months. Mm -hmm. That's how long it takes for the brain to really Mm re-equilibrate. So we don't have studies like that in marijuana. Mm -hmm. So I think my best guess is that recreational marijuana, the way it used to be used, which means uh, these were somewhat lower content, and, and most people weren't stoned all the time, yeah. that there is very unlikely to be a long-term brain effect from that kind of mm-hmm. use in adults. We don't know if people who are using very high-potency drug uh, for long periods of time might suffer a deletude. Mm-hmm. Now, that's adults. With right. kids, it's even more complicated. Certainly, there's a lot of studies that suggest that kids who start using marijuana in their teens impair their brain function in the long term. Mm -hmm. I think in my analysis of the literature, this is an unproven point as far as neuropsych is concerned. And I emphasize Mm -hmm. neuropsych. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to that in a minute. There is no question, though, if you are stoned all the time as a kid, you're not going to learn as well. You're going to get behind. And there's Mm -hmm. no question that the everyday function outcomes are not good. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but whether that's due to brain injury is a whole other matter.
0: Yeah, so there could be a lot of other variables that could come to play there that might dictate those outcomes other than just cannabis use.
1: And I might add, you know, there aren't many of these kinds of studies, but they tend to be persuasive is that, you know, there are some studies where twin pairs were looked at. These would be either monozygotic or dizygotic, so-called fraternal Mm -hmm. twins, who were, Discordant for use of marijuana. So, so one mm-hmm. twin was a user and the other wasn't. It turns out that over time, there's no difference. Really? So, uh, well, but again, a the, the large the, the sample sizes are not huge typically mm-hmm. in these studies. More needs to be done.
0: We are but, still kind of having that built in control, though. That, that's pretty compelling for sure, having the twin for comparison. Well, in terms of uh, other kinds of outcomes, we talked about the meta analyses that you mentioned in terms of like memory outcomes and things like that. But what about cannabis and things like driving safety or more at the ecological validity level of things?
1: That's one thing our center has recently completed a fairly large, which means about 190 people, mm-hmm. study using a driving simulator, wherein uh, Dr. Marcotte, who's the lead on this, Would bring in people. We have specially set up rooms with kind of ventilation. Um, So people are brought in, they smoke their federal marijuana, and then uh, they are put in a driving simulator. And then we measure for many hours how they perform and also do blood tests and various Mm -hmm. cognitive tests and things like that. And that study actually was just published in JAMA Psychiatry. And what it found was first, as you would expect, that in the first couple of hours after people smoke and this by the way was a placebo controlled so they right. also some people got marijuana that didn't have any THC in it right anyway so compared to that group people who got real THC performed somewhat worse on the simulator although interestingly even there about half the people could not be distinguished from the people who were getting oh, wow. a placebo hmm. so I guess that's not unusual. In, in almost any study you you get some people who are resistant to the. yeah, that's true. I mean, was
0: Was there anything about the people who were resistant to you know these kinds of effects? Um, anything that systematically differentiated them? I was just thinking about something like cognitive reserve or you know whether something like that or education kind of relatedly might have had not, gender. Not a, um,
1: not that Dr. Marcotte and his colleagues, they did look at, at that, Are there mm-hmm. were there some kind of other factors that would differentiate and mm-hmm. they couldn't find anything, at least not on the data that we had. <laughs> but that doesn't mean, by the way, marijuana is safe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some people are affected. Mm-hmm. Now, the other point is that I think was important in this study is uh, he also evaluated self-perception of impairment because in a way Mm -hmm. that's what counts when does a person say i'm i'm okay to drive again Mm -hmm. it turned out that people were pretty accurate in the first 30 minutes or so in saying how impaired i am and that kind of matched their performance on the simulator but by an hour and a half or two a lot of people said well i i feel pretty good now And they were still not performing that well on the symptoms. So there's this disconnect between your perception and the Mm -hmm. actuality. And Mm -hmm. we think that that is a public health message that, that will need to be emphasized, that you need to let time go by and you may feel better, but you may not be performing better. And the third outcome that was interesting was to look at the relationship between THC levels in your blood and performance. And shockingly, there was zero correlation, which means that in jurisdictions where people try to establish these per se laws, like with alcohol, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there's, if you're above a certain level, you're right. considered impaired or drunk. You can't do that with THC mm-hmm. because, just because of, I think, the pharmacokinetics are so different. Right. So, so those were idea. three three interesting. Yeah,
0: that's a great study. Um, I, I did hear about this study. I think I saw it come through like a Twitter feed or something like that, but uh, looking forward to reading that in more detail. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will um, be excited about that as well. So, Doctor Grant, if we're evaluating a patient who has a history of marijuana use, how should that factor into our diagnostic formulation? And and then also, how many days abstinent do you think that the patient should be before we actually do cognitive testing as neuropsychologists?
1: Yeah, and that's as you can imagine, a thorny question that comes up a lot in uh, neuropsych practice. Someone um, often is brought in for some other reason. I mean, it could be medical, legal, it could be something else. And the question is, you know, do they have some kind of brain impairment? And I would say that, first of all, it depends on, are you talking about a young person or an older person? It depends how much use they've had, you know, are they everyday users or have they used A few times, or maybe even once a month, or something like that. Mm -hmm. The person who has used occasionally or rarely, or even modestly, I think the likelihood that the marijuana is a factor in any neuropsych impairment is very low, unless they're actually stoned, which comes back Mm -hmm. to your other question how long Mm -hmm. should you wait? We don't know for sure, but I would say that you would need somebody to be off of cannabis for several weeks. To be getting a more confident estimation, of course, right. the best thing is repeated testing, right? As you yeah. test the person, okay, let's say they have certain kinds of problems, you think it may be marijuana related. Hopefully, you can get them to quit.
0: Yeah, I, that's one of the things them. I was going to ask you about. Like, how difficult is it for people to quit? So, let's say that you do have a person who's a regular user, and you want them to stop using for two or three weeks before you do the evaluation. Like in your experience. Is that going to be a a tough ask for a lot of patients? It
1: it can be a tough ask because, you know, we used to think that uh, marijuana did not have physiologic dependency producing Mm -hmm. uh, properties. That's actually not true. Now, the dependence that's produced or the physiologic dependence, rather, the effects of withdrawal are quite a bit more modest than you see Mm -hmm. in opioids or sedative hypnotics, obviously. Mm -hmm. But there are some. So, for example... People who are regular users and stop report some difficulties in sleep. They can become more irritable. Actually, they sometimes have rebound anxiety, things like this. So for these reasons, people don't want to quit because they don't want to feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I was just thinking too, like if somebody quits and then they're not sleeping, given what we know about how sleep can impact cognitive functioning, it potentially could be counterproductive to have somebody quit, I guess.
1: Well, but I think it's a question, again, of time. So I think if the marijuana is really an important uh, variable here, then one needs to take the time for the person to stop uh, Mm -hmm. and re-examine them. And it's not like they're going to be total insomniacs. I'm just saying these Mm -hmm. are some side effects that can be uncomfortable. Now, not everybody has that. Mm -hmm. One thing about THC and and these cannabinoids is they tend to leave your body very slowly. So there's actually kind of a natural detox process as opposed to alcohol, you know, your blood level drops sharply, Mm -hmm. it leaves your tissues right away. And so you have this big rebound. So you don't see that so much with marijuana. Mm -hmm. But I guess my main point would be is, in my experience, it's going to be unlikely that marijuana itself is the explanation for a significant uh, neuropsych concern. Right, okay. Unlikely that that's going to be the main explanation. There's usually other factors going on. It may contribute, especially if they're still, as I say, under the influence.
0: Right, so definitely something we have to think about in our evaluations for sure.
1: Well, you've already alluded to some
0: of these things, just you know, based on the research that you're doing, which sounds fascinating. I mean, you've already talked to us a little bit about some of the research that you're doing on sleep, on autism and kids. You talked a little bit about the research on psychosis proneness and things like that. So we did get a little bit of a window into maybe what some of the gaps in the literature are and the things that you're pursuing with the center. What are some of the other things? What are some of the other gaps in our knowledge that you think need to be pursued uh, moving ahead here in terms of understanding cannabis and conducting studies to evaluate it?
1: Well, there are a number of things. Uh, One is, uh, you know, I have said that it looks like, for example, THC-containing products in low doses may be helpful in neuropathic pain, seemed Mm -hmm. pretty safe in the short term. We need longer term studies to make sure it's A, continues to work. Mm -hmm. And B, that the safety profile is still there. Mm -hmm. Related to that, since many people who have these kinds of chronic conditions are older, we need to look at whether there are specific risks in older populations. I mentioned before, people say with serious heart disease, is there a risk there that we don't see in young people? So that's important to study. Uh, Another uh, important area, has to do with mode of administration. Again, our work and a lot of work has been done with inhaled products. However, older people and and medicinal users in general are probably not going to use an inhalational mode. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's cumbersome and you're not going to smoke a joint and this kind of thing. So they're going to take something by mouth, uh, either as an oil or a capsule or something of that nature Mm -hmm. to do studies on that.
0: Do we know anything about that? Just as sort of an aside, do we know anything about whether um, you expect the efficacy for something to be different uh, depending on the mode of administration?
1: Well, we know that the pharmacokinetics are different. So let me give you an example. If you inhale a product with THC, it produces an effect within minutes with a peak (laughs) effect at about 30 to 45 minutes and then a gradual decline over several hours. And by the way, the so-called bioavailability, um, that is how much of the THC actually gets into your body, is fairly high, just because the absorption through the lungs is uh, an efficient process. If you take this by mouth, first of all, the bioavailability is much lower. It's estimated Mm -hmm. at maybe 10% or something like Mm -hmm. that. And why is that? Well, one is that absorption from one person's gut to another can vary for various reasons, including what kind of microbiome they have right. and all mm-hmm. these kinds of things. And the other is the issue of what's called first-pass metabolism, which is that everything you take in through your gut, uh, first of all, goes to the liver. And the, the liver is like this giant sanitation plant it gets right. tries to get rid of things and things you shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And so that again, removes more active ingredient. And then there's the time course issue. So if you're inhaling, you can do a lot of uh, auto titration. That is, you you know, pretty quickly whether you're getting uh, an effect or not, and you can stop taking at that point. On the other hand, when you take something by mouth, And if it takes an hour or more to absorb and get in there, you might say, well, this isn't working, and you'll take some more. And then a few hours later, you get a really heavy hit. So it's more difficult to control the administration, Mm -hmm. which is all a long-winded way of saying we need to know more about these alternative modes of administration, Mm -hmm. how how
0: well they work. It just sounds like there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. Um, other, other areas for future work or gaps in our knowledge that you're... Well, the other about?
1: thing that I think has imp- impeded this work is something I alluded to earlier, which is that cannabis remains a Schedule One drug for federal purposes. And this really uh, means that investigators have a lot of limitations as to the products they can study. Mm-hmm. We actually cannot study the products that people are using. We have to do our best to approximate it, either through the NIDA source that I mentioned, or more recently, the Drug Enforcement Administration has been licensing some additional manufacturers. But again, there's a lot of limitations there. And it would be very good if uh, there could be federal legislation that said, look, at least for research purposes, uh, unshackle these investigators (laughs) Don't throw them in jail if they use, in their studies, they're using these products that people Mm -hmm. are buying in states that are where it's legal. So that would be a big step forward as well. All
0: right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I think our listeners are really going to love this podcast and, and love hearing about the work that you've done. And it's been very educational, very informative. And I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating having a chance to talk with you. Thanks very much.
1: Been a pleasure you